If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. Chrono dreams just for a while. He dreams of Mara. He dreams that she is his wife, that she's getting him up for work, giving him grief for not holding down a job. But the dream changes as wakefulness starts to return to him. It is his friend Ayla that greets him upon waking. She tells him that they were found on Mystic Mountain, injured and unconscious. She carried them back down to safety, but no one else landed with them. Magus has been lost to time. Luca remembers that he had mentioned Lavos being around since prehistoric times, which bodes poorly for Ayla's people. The time gate to this era might exist because of a profound event, which could absolutely mean that Lavos is about to appear. They rest a bit more before Kino comes to see them, telling them that reptites are attacking at a nearby village. Ayla is already heading there to help out, but another of the Ioka interrupts to tell them that a massive fire has started to the north. Laraba village has been burned, now it's just ruins. There are several survivors, but this is a heavy loss for the humans. Ayla is already here, convening with the elder of the village. He blames her and the trio for all of this. The reptites must have followed them down the mountain and attacked. But Ayla refuses to just accept this and demands action against the reptites. The elder, however, is old and tired and he's angry. He will not send people to fight. So Ayla will go. She says that she will go to the Tyranno Lair and defeat the reptites within. With the Elder's blessing, she will go to the nearby Dactyl Nest and use them to fly to the lair. This is a tragedy that's hit these people, and with the uncertainty of when Lavos originated from, it's careless to just leave this time as is. So they decide to follow Ayla up the mountain before the Dactyl Nest. They will assist her in any way that they can, like true friends should. The crew catches up with her just before she takes off into the sunset, and she's surprised to see that they followed her. She's about to do something very, very dangerous, and having friends at her side would make this all so much easier. It's humbling. So they all mount up and take off for the Tyranna Lair to the Palace of the Reptite. Every corridor, every room is littered with foes eager to tear the group apart. Partway through the keep, they find the prison cells, and look at who it is. Kino got taken captive, and lucky for him, Ayla can break his ass out. She tells him to return to the village in her place, to sit as the new Ioka chief should something happen to her. Ayla's not sure if they'll be coming back from this fight, and there needs to be a replacement should she die here, though she insists to Kino that there's no way that she could lose, so there's nothing to worry about. On his way out, Kino shows them how to access more of the keep, then he's off to tend to his people. What lies ahead for the trio is one hell of an ascent that tests their fortitude and their inventory stores. Their prehistoric foes come in all shapes and sizes, and some just hit like freight trains. But their final test comes at the top of the lair, where Azela's throne room rests. She's not at all surprised to see Ayla here. This was a confrontation that was meant to take place eventually. Azela draws them outside the throne room, where she stands upon a strange-looking dinosaur, looking up to the sky. She peers upon a strange red star in the sky, demanding that it just fall already. Well, if it won't fall now, then she'll occupy her time with these intruders. Now it's time to face off against the Black Tyranno. Azela herself is only truly dangerous in conjunction with the Tyranno. That thing takes some planning and breaking down the defenses, but Azela herself is handled primarily with splash damage and a few direct hits. With her downfall, the Reptites will be deemed defeated. The head of their kind is cut off and humanity will rise to be the predominant force on Earth. Soon after Azela is taken down, the Black Tyranno is killed. It was going to be their final chance at snuffing out the tribes and it didn't even make it out the front door. As she lays dying, Azela curses the fate of her kind, and she asks Ayla to remember them as a proud kingdom that fought until the very end. 
and then fire ignites the sky. Azela recites practiced words of the coming of a great fiery stone which will scorch every corner of the earth. Then the age of ice and snow will begin. Now is the time of its arrival. Lavos is here. It's not known where it came from or how far it traveled. It is at its weakest, but its arrival on this planet was no accident. Lavos has long been without sustenance. It will now slowly get its fill, siphoning energy from this world. They will get to witness this weakened creature's impact and soon will get a taste of its devastation. The trio flee the reptite lair where Lavos is going to land. And once they return, they find another time gate. To a new era they go, 12,000 BC. The world is still covered in ice and snow, storms rage on, and life is sparse, but how interesting that they should find some odd technology on the surface. The sort of thing that they might have expected to see in Robo's future time, but now this is in the far-flung past. Within is a teleporter that throws them high into the sky. They have landed in the kingdom called Zeal, but this place was only known in legend. There was no evidence in Chrono's time that this place actually existed, yet here they are, a city in the clouds. The inhabitants are all clearly adept magic users and have expertise in dream magic. It's a wondrous place full of strange things to explore. But what is also made clear is that people without magical talents are not welcome in Zeal. It is a place only meant for those who can use magic. All others are left on the dangerous, snow-covered surface of the world to fend for themselves. The queen, who is also called Zeal, is the backbone of this society. After the king died, she led her people forward onto great prosperity. And because of this, she is a beloved figure. But she's recently become reclusive and there are whispers of cruel things happening at the castle. While looking around, they meet a kid, a very strange kid, who walks right up to them and issues them a warning. One among you will shortly perish. It's unnerving, but they don't let it bother them too much. He was probably just a kid being a kid. A really creepy kid. There are more mysteries revealed when they reach other parts of this kingdom, like how their sunstone, the primary source of power within Zeal, was recently ordered to be sealed away in favor of a different power. No one is allowed near the sunstone, and they don't know what the queen is intending to replace their sunstone with. It's supposed to be far more powerful than the tired old sun, so the people of Zeal are content with this change. There are a huge number of topics to delve into with the inhabitants that give them insights into their society and some casual goings-ons about the cities. During their explorations, they find a huge airship called the Blackbird, and it is extremely cool, but they're not allowed access to it, which is perfectly understandable. At least it's understandable until the world's biggest douche canoe shows up, Dalton. When someone with power refers to those without as idiots, it's pretty plain the sort of person that they are. Dalton deserves to be drop-kicked off this platform, but everyone just holds their tongues as he acts like a prick. He does mention someone called the Prophet, though, someone that had come up a few times in town. The Prophet supposedly foretold of people wearing their garb appearing one day to interfere with the kingdom, but Dalton doesn't take action. He quite loudly exclaims that he'll just watch and see what happens. Remember, kids, money and power did not equal intelligent. The palace is located, of course, at the top of the mountain peak of this floating kingdom. Some within call it the center of the universe, and oh, buddy, no it ain't. It's a pretty presumptuous claim for such an enlightened society. Seems that the new energy source being uncovered and siphoned comes from the ocean, something in the ocean, 
A massive ocean palace has been constructed to make it far easier to access it, but no one can really say exactly what the power source is. Amongst the people here, the troubles brewing become a bit more apparent. For example, a young lady was ordered by the queen to burn a sapling that she got from the Guru of Life, something that Chrono convinces her to not do. The Guru had told her that it was a special tree that could restore the earth. Why destroy that? Why would the queen order this? Speaking of the Gurus, three of them have gone missing. These were people who guided humanity back from the brink, who wanted to restore the earth below. Who would want them gone? Outside the Mammon Machine Chamber, the mystery of that power source is revealed, and it's just... Uh, the Queen is trying to use the slumbering Lavos as an energy source. But the trio were brought here to this era for a reason, so maybe there's something that can be done about it? Time isn't so easy to change, though, so it's difficult to believe that an entire kingdom can be delivered from pure destruction. The Mammon Machine itself was made from Dreamstone, and requires constant care to regulate the power flow within it. Letting it overflow or surge could bring disaster on the kingdom. The one with the power to do this is the Queen's daughter, Lady Scala. The gurus that helped build it have gone missing, and it seems that their disappearances happened shortly after they disagreed with the Queen about something very suspicious. So the only one that can attend to the Mammon Machine is now Lady Scala. She is definitely somebody that they should speak to, so they track her down in her private quarters. That weird little boy is here, calling out to her. Looks like they're siblings. The boy's name is Janice, and he tells his big sister that he feels the black winds, which she acknowledges as well. There is something terrible on the horizon, but she tells him not to worry about it and gifts him a necklace full of her prayers, which will keep him safe should something happen. She must go attend to the Mammon Machine for her mother, but Janice insists that the Queen is not his mother. His mother doesn't act like the Queen does. She's not the same on the inside. Looks like the Queen has been cruel to her advisors and her own children. A messenger arrives to tell Scala that the Queen wants her down at the Ocean Palace immediately, and there is no refusing this request. She must go. On her way out, Scala does greet the trio, but she doesn't stop to make acquaintances. There's just no time for it. They follow her to the entrance leading to the Ocean Palace, but getting past the door requires a special magic from this era that they don't possess. But they could just siphon some off the Mammon Machine. Marl's pendant is just like the one that Scala has, and the machine is just pulsating with Lavos' power. Well, lucky, lucky it works. Charging up Marl's pendant with the Mammon Machine tricks the door into opening for them. Looks like there was a meeting taking place, and they weren't really invited to it. The queen starts yelling as soon as they enter, and the apparent prophet that folks were talking about steps forward to tell her that these were the doombringers that he had warned her about, which makes them the queen's enemy just like the gurus were. The cruel man Dalton summons a golem creature. Seems that this is what he specializes in, finding things to fight in his place. But the queen and her court didn't leave, they're watching close by. And once the golem is dispatched, they reappear to trap the trio. They will be imprisoned within the Mammon Machine room and tortured. Who knows how long they were left there. But Lady Scala and her little brother Janice eventually come to save them from this fate. It's the right thing to do. But they also wish for the group to find and save the Guru of Life, who was imprisoned within a mountain chained to the earth, the Mountain of Woe. But the mysterious prophet interrupts their meeting and puts a stop to this. He bargains with Scala, telling her that if she cooperates with him, then he will spare these interlopers' lives. The first thing he wants is for this trio to show him how they got here, so they take him to the time gate. 
He commands that they enter it and for Scala to seal it behind them. With no other choice, the group enters and is thrown back through time to the Lavos impact site of 65 million BC, and Scala closes the door behind them. Robo pipes up and says that he recognized the crest on the door to the Queen's throne room. Chrono has seen it before as well, when they were in 2300 BC. There were a couple of different doors with the same crest on it, but one in particular stood out to Robo, because in that room was a strange old man quite out of time and place, as well as one of the strange new creatures that they saw in 12,000 BC. They know precisely where to go and rush back to the future to find the Keeper's Dome. Within, the old man isn't puttering about. Only just the new creature is there, and it says that its final sequence was for the Wise One's burial. Seems that during their venture, he passed away. Now the new can join him in eternal rest, and it won't stop them from going through the door. It really was sad to hear that the old man died here. Beyond the door, there are notes left by the old man, who was Balthazar, the guru of reason, formerly of the Kingdom of Zeal. Balthazar wrote of how he came to be here. A great disaster befell his kingdom, and he was cast through time. The creature called Lavos turned out to be an ancient being. Those within the Kingdom of Zeal had thought Lavos to be a product of their time, but they too were sorely mistaken. And by the time they knew what Lavos was and what it was that they were doing, it was far too late. Because Balthazar was thrown into 2300 AD, some 300 years after the destruction of Earth, he was merely a student of the apocalypse. And he spent all of what remained of his life here alone. It began to wear on his mind eventually. His records were his attempt at maintaining some semblance of sanity. He so longed to return home to his proper time, but as the years dragged on, it became more and more clear that that was just impossible for him to do. His research was completed at the end of his life, and in his notes he left instructions for whoever was able to open the door to this area. He wished them to take hold of the reins of time, unite the world and the times, and to stop Lavos. What lies beyond his final door is his gift to them, his last and greatest work. Balthazar has left them a ship called the Epoch, capable of traveling through time itself. But they have no way of getting into it, let alone a way to start it up. But that odd new creature comes prancing in happy as can be, pushing a set of seats that will load them into the cockpit. Seems Balthazar has one more trick up his sleeve. He copied his memory into the new. So, in a sense, Balthazar himself explains to them how to operate the epoch through time, and then shows them how to load up the seat. Now, they're good to go. They won't have to rely on time gates to get around, and they'll be able to fly over maps rather than walk. Everything is now streamlined to make getting around faster, and jumping through times will even take them to the same spot they took off from. So if they want to see a landmark or a place of interest in a different era, all they have to do is push a button. That the Prophet ordered the time gate sealed in 12,000 BC doesn't really matter anymore. They use the epoch to travel back to that time. Unfortunately, the skyways have been disabled, so they can't teleport up to Zeal anymore. They'll have to find another way to reach the kingdom in the sky. In a nearby cave, they find the landlocked humans that don't possess magical capabilities. Because of this, they were deemed unworthy of leaving behind this ice scape and became known as the Earthbound Ones. They live terribly stressful, cold lives. They built primitive homes within the mountains that shelter them from the outside storms. They have to scrape for every bit of comfort and sustenance that they need. Compared to the kingdom above them, this is a cruel life. And to make it worse, when the Ocean Palace construction began, labor was obtained from these people. Inhabitants of the mountain were taken by force and never seen again. 
This was after the gurus were locked away by the queen when her cruel reign began. These people knew the gurus, at least they knew the guru of life. They were fond of him, and when he vanished, they immediately noticed. But they have no power to raise issue with it, and certainly not the resources that would be needed to save him from the mountain of woe. Their mountain does connect to it through an underground passage, but the tunnels are far too dangerous for them to try reaching it. So, the trio will. Together, they gear up and battle their way through the underground. The only way they're going to reach the Kingdom of Zeal is with the Guru of Life's help. They will do whatever they must to reach his mountain prison. It's a long, arduous fight around every corner, even after they make it through the tunnels and onto the floating Mountain of Woe. The enemies here have been hardened by millions of years of harsh environment and it shows. It's the most difficult stretch of combat that they've faced thus far, and the difficult terrain sure as hell doesn't help. When they finally reach the Guru's prison, a warden is there. The Giga Gaia is meant to stop any who would intrude upon the Guru's prison, and it's a highly effective deterrent. After the long climb it took just to reach this place, it's easy to see why no one would have any hope in freeing the Guru. It's a rush to the finish to meet out more damage than the Gaia does, and it's a race that they win just barely. With the Giga Gaia out of the way, they can release the Guru from his prison, and look at who it is. It's Melchior. They have, of course, met this man before, in the future. He's the one who would repair the Masamune. But back in 12,000 BC, Melchior hasn't met this crew. He has no idea how they know his name. And knowing that the weapon master Melchior is actually the guru of life from this era, it's a bit of a shock. He immediately jumps into asking about the state of the queen and the ocean palace. It's saddening to hear about the queen's state of mind, and it's disheartening to know that the palace is near completion. He believes that the cause of all this trouble is from the Mammon Machine, the energy of Lavos. The more energy that the machine absorbs, the further she descends into madness. Melchior's freedom triggers one more trap meant to keep him from escaping. The mountain itself begins to fall, and every one planet side can feel it. The Mountain of Woe breaks the chain holding it, and it begins to descend towards the Earth. Thankfully, once complete, no harm is done to the Earthbound ones. The group makes it back to the safety of the mountain to begin planning. Melchior fears that if the Mammon Machine gets too close to Lavos, it will wake it up. Which could be a tragedy. It would definitely be a tragedy. So, they need to stop the Mammon Machine from operating in the Ocean Palace. Lady Scala sees this moment to sneak down to the mountain with her little brother Janus to speak with them. No doubt, everyone who's still in the City of Zeal heard the Mountain of Woe crash down to the Earth. If she was able to sneak away, that means the Queen and her court are probably down at the Ocean Palace and they don't have long to act. Scala tells them that the Ocean Palace has already been complete, and while this is a terrible omen of things to come, she assures them that without her, they cannot activate the machine. She reopened the Skyways, and she asks of the group to intervene and stop her mother. But, well, it seems one of the court stayed behind, Dalton the Douche. He has some stereotype villainous things to say, all lacking creativity, or really even humor. But he steals away the princess and the prince, which means she is going to be forced to activate the machine eventually. Their clock is about two minutes until midnight now. They need to hurry the hell up. Before they take off, Melchior gives them a beautiful red stone blade made from Dreamstone. It's the same material the Mammon machine is made of, and they should be able to destroy it for good using this. No one recognizes it in this form, but wink wink, that boils and ghouls is the Masamune in its original form. Since Scala turned the Skyways back on, they're able to teleport right up to Zeal. Nothing seems to be amiss within the kingdom, so they go straight to the Queen's throne room where Dalton is waiting, having a massive tantrum. Seems that he got left behind to guard the castle, and he's doing an awful job of it. He's one half ego, one half insecure, one half man-child. 
This time, though, he fights on his own. Dalton is admittedly a bit of a pain to handle. His greatest threat is a constant halving of each person's health pool with an iron sphere, but a dedicated healer and high damage attacks whittles him down to nothing in no time. They don't really get to defeat him, though. As soon as he's injured, Dalton hightails it out of there, leaving the kingdom completely unguarded and the portal down to the Ocean Palace open for use. Kind of get the feeling that Dalton doesn't really care about the queen or her motivations, he just wants power for himself. And as soon as something is dangerous, he has no qualms with just fleeing. So, down to the Ocean Palace with them, where things are still yet calm. But at the heart of this place, the queen is commanding Scala to activate the machine. The young woman has no way to resist her captors, so she complies, and the mammon machine comes to life. Immediately, the energy of Lavos begins to flood the palace. There's not much time left before Doom awakens. Chrono and his team fight tooth and nail through the palace. It takes what feels like hours to make it to where they need to be. The spirits, Masa and Mune, appear to the group as they go. They're spirits within Melchior's redstone blade, here to offer small guidance or insight into what's to come. While they fight on, the queen is pulling from the energy of the mammon machine, intent on using it to obtain eternal life with total disregard to any potential consequences. An attendant steps forward to warn the queen that what she's doing is too dangerous to continue. Scala is beginning to suffer, but that doesn't matter. The queen will kill anyone that intervenes. For Chrono and the crew, the first one that they have to contend with is Dalton again. This time, he brings out two golems. Oh no, God, this guy sucks. And again, he's thwarted. But then something terribly wrong begins to take place at the end of their confrontation. The palace goes into high alert, and Dalton knows that things are starting to go wrong. He too wants immortality, and like the queen, he'll step over anyone to get it. They follow him towards the Mammon Machine Room, where the queen is forcing Scala to siphon off Lavos's energies. And it very quickly becomes apparent that things are flying out of control. The Mammon Machine is starting to be overwhelmed with power, injuring Scala. In an act of desperation, Kreto takes out the redstone blade containing the spirits Masa and Mune and sees it thrown directly into the Mammon Machine. The blade quickly changes during the attack, turning into the pure form of Masamune that Frog immediately recognizes, but it's way too late. Lavos is stirring, and soon it will arrive. The blade could not stop this apocalypse. The parasite arrives and begins its attack on the palace. Ayla, Frog, and Chrono step forward to try to fight it off, but who could have known? The group falls after the first attack. Then, the Prophet arrives and reveals himself to be Magus. When these two parties fought, it was 680. Magus was trying to summon Lavos to his keep to kill it. He landed back in 12,000 BC once their fight concluded, back in his childhood era, back when his sister was still alive, back when he was still called Janus, back when the kingdom of Zeal still flew high in the sky. He took on the disguise as the Prophet to get access to Lavos, using his knowledge of history and his homeland to manipulate the Queen into believing him worthy of a place at her side. That Magus would stand against Lavos is funny to the queen. She enters the arena with Scala at her side, who's begging her mother to just stop, but the queen will kill her own children if it means obtaining the power of Lavos. She has been completely corrupted by it. The true queen of this kingdom is no more. Magus is immediately disabled by Lavos. He never stood a chance. His self-belief was misplaced. He even manages to land a single hit on it, and it does nothing. Absolutely nothing. All of them are left at the mercy of Lavos, but defiantly, Chrono stands up to the beast. Chrono is gone. His friends, 
Magus, and Scala are thrown back to the Mammoth Machine Room, but the palace is nearing collapse. Using the last of her pendant's power, Scala sends them all back up to the surface, all except herself. When Magus was a child, he went by Janus. Scala was his big sister, and he had vowed that once Lavos was dead, he would search out his long-lost sibling. And he found her all these years later, and has lost her again. But even after this, there's uncertainty as to whether or not she really died down there. Lavos, too, makes it up to the surface and begins an attack on the Kingdom of Zeal. This is how it was lost to history. Lavos snuffed it out. Zeal falls from the sky down to the ocean below. Only a few survivors will make it out. History does not wish to be changed. Though the events were different, the end result was the same. What happened to Zeal in the original timeline has happened here as well. The Earthbound Ones are also victimized after the impact. Massive waves cascade all over the land. Those who weren't fortunate enough to reach high ground were swept away. When Ayla and Frog awaken, they're warm and safe within a survivor's hut. The elder of this group greets them, but when they ask about Chrono, he has no answer for them. They're the only ones that they found. Melchior and Janus were pulled into portals to take their proper places dispersed into time. Scala is missing, Magus is gone, but the Epoch washed up on shore, so Frog and Ayla aren't stranded here, thankfully. And the Elder has Marl's pendant. Krano had it on him when he died. The two of them were extremely close, possibly even in love. When she hears of his death, she will be devastated. For now, Luca joins them. They need a full party should something go awry here. The rest of the group will remain, as usual, at the end of time. Amongst the few survivors, there's a potent air of despair. And the arrival of Dalton doesn't really help. His soldiers precede him to demand all pay homage to the new king, apparently. Ever the opportunist, the dead haven't even been warned and he's swooping in to create a new kingdom for himself. He spotted the Epoch nearby, and he knows that it's the handiwork of the lost guru Balthazar. He's just gonna go ahead and take that for himself, and these good time travelers will be taken back to the Blackbird as prisoners. When they awaken, all their gear is gone. They have no armor, weapons, consumables, or tools. But they do have Ayla, who doesn't need armor or weapons to dish out Megapanda foes. So the trio mix sneaking around in the vents with outright violence as they search the Blackbird for their belongings and a way out. They sniff out caches of their gear spread out around the airship, and then they spy Dalton. He's putting his disgusting nacho fingers all over the Epoch, but they've not yet figured out how it works. He thinks the Epoch is going to be his royal air throne or something. But someone like Dalton should not be in possession of a ship that can travel through time. With all their gear restored, it's time to find a way to get the Epoch back and get off this cursed ship. One of Dalton's golems finds them and proves to be as flaccid as he is. It doesn't do anything, just complains and acts confused. It's not much of a challenge, but it does cost them a bit of time. It stalled them here long enough for Dalton to manage to get into the Epoch and turn it on. He engages them outside the Blackbird airship, but like so many times before now, he proves himself to be an absolutely inept Dalt. After a few hits, he tries to go for another golem summoning and manages to get himself pulled into his own portal. Good riddance. The trio once again gain control of the Epoch, except, well, for as much sass as Dalton received, Frog, Luca, and Ayla aren't really any better at controlling the Epoch. Krona was the one who typically did the flying, so they just sort of start pushing buttons. After accidentally blasting the Blackbird out of the sky, they get the hang of it. It's fine! Don't even worry about it. Seeing Dalton and the Blackbird destroyed brings the Earthbound Ones a great measure of joy. His reign was short and flaccid, but long may Dalton be remembered as the moron he was. 
Before they decide to leave the area, there's still the matter of Magus. There's not a lot of landmass left for him to be hiding on, and they really can't ignore him. They can't just let him go. He's too much of a wild card, and his motives are very unclear. They need to find him. After some hopping about, they locate the once fiend lord at the Northern Cape, and gosh, what would you do with Magus? He's wholly unapologetic for all the evil he's done. It was done in the name of vengeance against Lavos, a mutual enemy, but so many innocents were made to suffer in his misguided venture. He never stood a chance, and if he had stopped to examine his own abilities against those of Lavos and what it had done to an entire planet 65 million years prior, then he would have seen that. He reveals to the trio his own proper memories from when he was a child called Janus. He was in the Ocean Palace, spying on the Queen and the Gurus when they originally tried to bring forth Lavos in the unaltered timeline. As a child, he saw their failures, he witnessed Lavos itself, and saw the Gurus get thrown into portals that hurled them through time before he too was cast away. When Janus emerged into a new world, it was Ozzy that found him, and now they all know of his past and some of the motivations that drove him for so long. But does that mean he's worthy of forgiveness after everything that he's done? And if not forgiveness, then perhaps is he worthy of mercy? Well, maybe it's not actually about Magus and what he deserves. The one that he's wronged the most is among them in this group, Frog. Magus murdered his dear friend Cyrus ten years ago, changed him into a frog, and then brought war to his homeland. And to fight Magus here would be to kill him in the end. Well, Frog decides that Magus will not die. Killing Magus will not bring Cyrus back to life, it will not restore peace to Frog's heart. So they leave him there. He'll fester in his own failures, he will not complete his mission if he stands here alone. They will leave him here in 12,000 BC, staring upon the death place of his people, helpless and alone. But Magus bids them to wait. He wishes to join them. Though they may not like Magus, putting all altruism aside, it will certainly bring him to heal in service of their own agenda. So Magus will join the ragtag crew of time travelers as a powerful magician capable of clearing a field with just a few spells. But with it is also a hope. Magus says that while the fool Chrono is dead, that doesn't mean that it can't be undone. History is not simply changed, that's something that they've faced time and time again, but they are travelers out of time and space, and those who are most important to the continuation of the flow of time can have their fate defied. If all things had been carried out unaltered, then Chrono would have gone on to live a full and healthy life, perhaps with ancestors and great life works, and now that's gone and it will change history. So there is a chance that Chrono's fate can be averted. He can be saved from that moment so history can continue on properly. Magus tells them that they need to go see Gaspar, the guru of time. They don't know where he could be though. Their best bet would be returning to the end of time to talk to the old man to see if he has any insights. But to sink home, the dangers of meddling with history, something happens right before them. You see, the adult form of Magus, appearing here in 12,000 BC as the Prophet, has led to a serious consequence. Originally, Lavos would have awoken enough to destroy the Kingdom of Zeal to wipe it away from the history books. Everyone would have died, including the Queen. But because Magus as the Prophet made things so much worse, made the Mammon Machine so much more efficient in order to awaken Lavos so that he could kill it, and because the Queen did not die down there in the palace like she should have, the Black Omen rises from the depths. With the husk of the Ocean Palace as its vessel, Lavos brings the ship to the surface, and the Queen of the Kingdom of Zeal will reign as an immortal. 
the apocalypse is inevitable. And now, if they wish to stop Lavos, they will have to contend with the Black Omen as well. Things just got a lot more difficult for them. Back at the end of time, the old man is saddened to hear of Chrono. Everyone is devastated with his passing. But there is indeed a chance that he can be spared from that fate, and they will stop at nothing to achieve it. The old man recognizes Magus's face, though he hasn't seen him fully since he was a child. He knows that Magus is a tainted soul, but that he's powerful. He doesn't offer anything further, though. He doesn't play out his hand to reveal to them who he is. He just offers them condolences, at least until they try to leave. Before they depart to try to find this last guru, he calls back to them and he gifts them something. The Chrono Trigger. The Time Egg. If they want to use it, they need to find the one who made the Epoch, Balthazar. He can guide them on that path should they wish to see Chrono's life restored. The Chrono Trigger represents potential. It is enigmatic and difficult to define, and it might not hatch precisely what they wish, but it is their only option. Magus and Luca suss out precisely who the old man is. He is Gaspar. He's the guru of time. He's the only person who could have had something like the Chrono Trigger. And though he appreciates that they recognize who he is, to him that was just a thing of the past, a name from long ago. He's content just being who he is now. He will guide them on as much as he can. So, first up on the salvation of Chrono, back to 2300 AD to see Balthazar, or at least his brain that he uploaded into that new. He tells them that Death Peak, which sounds super friendly, harbors a power capable of restoring life. To do this, they will need that power and something that can take the slain person's place, a doll identical to it. He once knew of a magician named Norstein Beckler. They could make that doll. But, well, Beckler sure isn't here now, but Beckler loved fairs, so if they can find one, it's almost a guarantee that they will find him there. That's a bit more approachable than Death Peak, so first they're gonna go find a fair. And as luck would have it, there was that millennial fair taking place in Chrono, Luca, and Marl's original time. So they just swing back for a while to check out the fairgrounds to find somebody named Beckler. And it turns out that weird haunted tent of horrors is a Norstein Beckler attraction. For a modest exchange of currency, and if they agree to play his memory game, then he offers to make them a doll of Chrono. Frog plays the game and makes it far enough along to make the final price 5,000 gold. Perfectly fair. Beckler will have it delivered to Chrono's house, and, well, there they find the lifeless doll in the corner of his room, and his mother is also there cleaning. She asks about her son, completely unaware that he's gone. But they don't tell her that, at least not yet. They don't have the heart, not when there's still hope, at least. Luca and Frog keep the grief away from her, but she is a reminder that there are so many people depending on them. So many hearts would break without Chrono. Well, with the doll obtained, that's one huge task down. Next is Death Peak. They take the doll back to 2300 for Balthazar to inspect, and once it has his blessing, he bids them on to the mountain. To ascend it, they'll need guidance. Before he died, Balthazar programmed three entities which will venture on before them to the mountain to act as guides. Now, that's what we call foresight. Before they go, Balthazar asks them to turn this new off so that it can rest. The poor guy has been on for a very long time, so it's his turn for some R&R &R and sweet, sweet dreams. Death Peak is every bit deserving of its name. It's riddled with violent storms and fiends. The help of the three entities is greatly appreciated, though. Without them, it would be a guessing game to make it up the mountain. Not an impossible guessing game, but a frustrating one, certainly. To sweeten this pot of farts, there are spawns of lavos creeping around, which are hard hitters and poor omens of things to come. But together, they do make it to the summit. 
Someplace around here is a power that can restore life. Luca reads words that Balthazar gave to them and holds out the Chrono Trigger. They all think of Chrono, they keep him in their hearts, and wish for his return to life. But the Chrono Trigger shatters, which immediately causes them to despair, believing that their endeavor was in vain. They failed. That is until the eclipse begins. The sun is blocked out and darkness covers the lands. The trio are taken back, back to the moment of Chrono's death. Carefully, they replace Chrono in the scene with the Doppel doll, and they let it take the hit from Lavos that Chrono originally did. They can't remain to watch to see if it works. They take their leave back to Death Peak in 2300 AD to see if Chrono follows them. And it's such a relief to see that it worked. Chrono descends back down to the mountaintop with them. Their group is made whole once again. Broken hearts mended. Luca grabs him up in a big hug to let her relief out. They've been friends since childhood. She was there for Marl when they thought that he was gone forever. Now, she gets to see Chrono return to Marl, return to the group, back at the end of time. Now things can really be brought to resolution. Lavos' location has been revealed, and they know what will happen eventually if it remains unchallenged. The Black Omen is where the Parasite resides. They simply have to choose what era to attack it in. There are many adventures they can still pursue to set things right in this world, should they choose. And the old man Gaspar guides them on these potential paths. They can use what he calls the bucket to jump straight to the parasite, but that's not the path that they want to take. Instead, they'll take the time to go to see to everyone's various affairs throughout time. They get powerful armors in Ayla's era. They cross time to empower the old sunstone lost during the Age of Antiquity when the Kingdom of Zeal abandoned the power of the sun in favor of Lavos. They chase down pieces of frogs past, finding the gravesite of his lost friend Cyrus within a decrepit estate. The dead warrior empowers the Masanune and gives Frog peace with his life and his choices. They go to the Fiend Lord's Keep, now ran by Ozzy. They correct the wrongs of Magus, who led an army against humanity in order to create chaos while he summoned Lavos. With his old generals taken care of, peace will return to the kingdoms. Robo helps oversee the growth of lush forests in the desert lands. Luca comes to term with a mistake from her past that hurt her mother. They go to 2300 AD to fight against the mother brain and end the robot threat humanity suffers under. Once they see all these things through, the party is fully equipped and as empowered as they can be. They are confident in their approach towards the great evil in the sky, the Black Omen. They choose 1000 AD as their era of attack. For 13,000 years, the Black Omen will have hung in the sky, but it's not until 1999 AD that it will cause harm. And it's been there for so long that no one really notices it anymore. No one really pays it any mind. As far as the people of 1000 AD know, it's just always been there. As soon as they land, the Omen's defense systems target them. And there will be no reprieve from this. Within the Black Omen are servants and monstrosities of Lavos that will impede their every move. The Immortal Queen Zeal greets them early on. It's been 13,000 years since the fall of her kingdom, since she was overtaken by Lavos. The woman she was is long gone. She's fully corrupted by sinister energies found within the sea. She discloses that 1999 AD is when Lavos will reach full power, when the apocalypse will begin, and that the Black Omen is the conduit through which their power flows. If the Black Omen is destroyed, that corruptive power would cease, and the fight throughout the ship is brutal. Every encounter is a test because if they can't clear the omen, then they stand no chance against Lavos itself. 
and when they reach the end of a section, which is fight after fight after fight, there are few reprieves to be had. It just leads them on to another area, which is a new series of conflicts to be had. Once they find the queen again, she tries to dissuade them with nihilism. Nothing matters as the omen is outside their time and space, being everywhere and no place. It is all and it is nothing. They await Lavos, and only the defeat of the Queen, the Omen, and Lavos will stop them from reaching the finality of a violent destiny. The Queen is quite the contender, using dirty tactics that deplete entire health pools in one fell swoop, with little way around it outside of robust healing effects. When the party recovers and blasts the Queen down, she adapts. The Mammon Machine is near, and in her thousands of years of life, the Queen has adapted to the energies within it. She fuses herself inside the Mammon Machine. Each attack will either inspire higher defense or stronger attacks against the group. It's a matter of balancing aggression with defenses, but even overcoming this phase isn't the end. Queen Zeal has one more tactic. She removes herself from the broken Mammon Machine and whisks them atop the Black Omen. The two parties exchange their words, each side vowing to end the other no matter the cost. This will be the Queen's final form, a three-part mechanical foe far more powerful than her humanoid body. Hitting her hands will result in punishment. No AoE may be used. They have to focus on just hitting her face and have to restrain their most destructive abilities. Chipping away at her huge health pool feels like hours of work, but they overcome the immortal queen. In her defeat, she calls out to Lavos, begging the parasite for its power. In response to the queen's call for aid, Lavos begins to stir. A chasm opens up, and the once slumbering parasite begins to rise to the surface. This is 1,000 years too soon. It's not yet reached full power, but the arrival of these three have forced it to act. They are pulled into its vortex into a fight arena separate from the outside world. Lavos has the abilities of great foes that the party has faced in the past, forcing them to constantly shift their strategy with each transition. And if they can't remember the strategies, they have to suffer the consequence of misplaced attacks. But what cannot be denied during this is that Lavos feels extremely weak. Never do its attacks feel that threatening. Never does it manage to knock any one of them out, not even close. They attack and heal through everything that Lavos has, which makes one wonder, how is this the bringer of an apocalypse? Well, they destroy the creature's head and silence finally falls on the arena, but they can enter the body and within it, they find it to be cavernous. There's a path leading deeper in and at the center, they find something alien. What they faced outside was simply the carapace of Lavos, not the being itself. This is another shell of the creature. It's far more capable of destruction than the exterior of the parasite. It doesn't take long before party members begin dropping. It's a cycle of healing, reviving, and trying to just deal out enough raw damage to deal with this thing. It is wild how much pain it dishes out. Thank God for cheat engines. Taking out the arms slows it for a bit, but they have to be able to move fast enough against the core of the structure to stop its attack. When they finally break through it, then Lavos itself appears. In its millions of years on this planet, it's accumulated knowledge from every creature that's ever lived. And this is the result. It's unspeaking, communicates nothing through body language, and immediately resorts to hostility. Confusing tactics make Lavos an enigma in battle. It has two drone additions that perform different functions and require damage types in order to whittle it down. But what would one expect from an alien parasite that's been feeding off the world's energies for millions of years? While impossible to know exactly what its motivations or thoughts are, Lavos' intentions can be inferred. 
It possibly once began as a spawn of a greater being that came here to grow and consume. It created its own spawns that they faced off against on Death Peak in the future. Those two one day would go off to find and consume worlds of their own. Each one represents the future destruction of an entire planet. While Lavos may not be an original specimen, from it would come the doom of countless. After a struggle that seems to span eras in this space between realities, they manage to defeat one drone, then the body, and then the final piece of Lavos. With nothing remaining that can resurrect its other parts, finally, finally, Lavos is destroyed. When he awakens, it's not the gentle call of his mother or Marl that Chrono hears. A rough, authoritative voice barks in order to wake up, to get his wretched body out of bed. His day of execution has been withdrawn, and his death is imminent. But what is this about? He's back in 1080, his proper time, but is this about the day at the fair when he and Marl first met? He'd been accused of kidnapping her, and admittedly, he did break out of prison and beat the piss out of the Chancellor. Oh, well, this isn't good, is it? Chrono is dragged back to the castle and brought before the king, who asks him where Marl is. She steps out to try talking to him, assuring him that she's just fine, that Chrono has done nothing wrong. Again! But even the attendant in the room says that what Chrono has done has affected the entire kingdom. As in, save the future. The old man, Doan, from the future enters the room. He belongs in 2300 AD, not here. What's going on? He says that this group taught them hope. And then the king from 600 AD comes forth and speaks of the defeat of Magus the Fiend Lord. They restored peace to the realm by doing so. Kino from 65 million BC emerges. And this starts to feel a bit like a fever dream, like none of this is real. But it was Luca that set this up. She brought them all here to get Chrono a clean slate and Marl some much-needed respect from her father. Knowing what they've been up to puts a lot into perspective for the king. He's been all worried about his kingdom while his daughter was saving the world. Now, they will all be treated like the heroes that they are, which means festivities are in order. There's still one night left at the Millennium Fair, and the addition of a grand parade is befitting. For some time, the entire crew walks about enjoying the celebration. There's food, drink, dancing, games, socializing, and all are aware that this ragtag group has saved the planet. But as these things tend to go, all good things must eventually come to an end. At the northern part of the fairgrounds, where Luca's teleporters are still set up, they gather to say their farewells. Now that Lavos is gone, the energy to these time gates is growing weaker. Ayla returns to 65 million BC to live beside her beloved Kino and to ready her people for the coming Ice Age. Frog returns to 600 AD with his king. He doesn't yet know it, but soon he will be delivered from his curse and returned to his human form. He will be the greatest swordsman in all the land and an honor to the memory of his lost friend Cyrus. After Frog, Magus then departs without a word. He vowed long ago to search out his sister Scala once Lavos was defeated. It is a path that he will pursue alone. And then finally is Robo. He must return to the future, but with Lavos gone, the apocalypse in 1999 AD never took place. Robo's home will be a far different place. What if he doesn't exist in the future anymore? What if once he enters that time gate, he's destroyed? But Robo is confident that things will be just fine. There will certainly be a place for him in the future. Even if it's impossible to know that for sure, Robo maintains his positivity and his confidence, and then 
he too is gone. As the three friends and originators of the group stand together, they briefly discuss their journey. They believe that Lavos is at peace and the world will be okay, and then they contemplate what to do with the Epoch. The time-traveling machine would be dangerous if casually used, and tampering with history is a gamble at best, so maybe they should just destroy it. They'll never see their old friends again, but maybe that would be for the best. Well, leave it to fate to decide otherwise. As they're discussing it, Chrono's cat comes running through, with his mother not far behind. The cat jumps into the time gate, and his mother, without a second thought, leaps in after it. The time gate closes, and it will never reopen. Well, they run for the Epoch. They can't just leave Chrono's mother stranded in time. They must search her out and see her return to her proper era. You know what that means? It's time for a new adventure to begin. 